This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. I'd like to discuss an important topic tonight called how to understand the person that you're dating, their reactions, whether it's the person you're dating or the person that you're married to. Because if you, can't, if you don't understand the reactions to events, you're going to get into a lot of problems in life. One of the great Muslim personalities of the generation preceding Second World War was a man by the name of Rabbi Avraham Grozinski, who was the Mashkiach of a yeshiva called Sabatka. He elaborated on the concept that the only way to fulfill the mitzvah of interacting with another person is with the love and care that the Torah obligates, and that is to know the individual's unique wants, needs, and desires. Which is why one of the most important things that I believe in is when you date, you need to create a top 10 list of what you need in an individual. And when you get to know that person, you need to understand what they want and need. So you know how to push their buttons. And you know how to stay away from things that will cause them to get upset. Even if someone wants something that you don't have a need for, your obligation to do acts of kindness obligates you to understand him and their unique reactions. Because if you can understand the other person's reactions, you'll stay away from problems. You won't hit mines and you won't hit bombs. When you first meet someone, it's impossible to know their needs. Only after daily interactions with someone will you gain the knowledge of how to work with that person, how to talk to that person, how to interact with that person. This applies to everyone we encounter. All the more do we need to know the individuality of the person to whom we are dating and married. Men and women have different natures and different needs. So one of the most important skills that you need in dating and shalom bias is that you need to be able to learn how to communicate effectively. Men and women have different natures and different needs. And if you're a man, you need to understand how a woman functions. And if you're a woman, you need to understand how a man functions. The Torah obligation is to understand who they are, and only by this means can you love and respect that person properly. It's helpful to know generalities about the differences in needs and reactions of men and women. Men are different than women. A key benefit is that you'll become more accepting towards your husband or wife when they act in ways not like what you would like, because you understand that they're different. And there's whole books on it. There's a guy named John Gray, who wrote men are from Venus and whatever, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And he shows the differences, and it's too long to get into here, and I have lectures on this. But always keep in mind that the only one whose needs, patterns, and reactions really count in your life are the individual to who you're dating and the person you're married to. The person you're married is not your father, they're not your mother, they're not your brother or your sister, or any other person you ever met in your life. This person is uniquely themselves, whether it's a man or a woman that you're married to. And every time you speak to that person, he or she is how they are at that moment. They are not exactly who they were at the moment in the past and how they will be in the future. You need to adapt with the marriage. You need to adapt with the relationship. And you see sometimes people get into fights again and again and again because they don't, they don't come up to the present of who the person is. And they keep bothering them and saying things that annoy them without realizing that those are the things that make them feel upset. So you need to understand what is it that they want to hear and you can speak to them that way and avoid what they don't want to hear and don't annoy them. Since each individual on the planet is unique and different, no book can tell you exactly how you should be with each person. You are unique and your husband or wife is unique. When you hear general ideas about marriage, realize that they can be true for many people. Now, so how can you learn to react at the most optimum level with the person you're married? How can I be the best husband that I could be? How can I learn to be the best wife? He or she will teach you if you keep your eyes and ears open. Very important lesson. The person you're married to or that you're dating, by the way they act, 
will, will basically give off the vibe of how they want to be spoken to and how they don't want to be spoken to. It's your <laughs> lesson, it's your mission to be able to chop that. Learn from everything that happens between you and your wife or you and your husband with terms of words and actions. And you'll learn how to, you know, this has to come down and this has to go up. People are different and differ greatly in many ways. For instance, the need for space and boundaries. For example, I got a WhatsApp text from someone who lives in Lakewood. He says to me the following. He says, my wife likes to get on my phone and read all of my private texts and WhatsApps. Is that appropriate? That's considered violating someone's boundaries. I said to him, that is absolutely not appropriate. She's not allowed to do that. There's a trust factor here. It bothers the guy that she reads all of his messages. I have a phone. My wife has a phone. I don't know what's going on in her phone. Neither does she look at her mind. We're not responsible. Rather, it's not appropriate for us to violate the boundaries of the other person. So, some people have a strong need to share themselves with others. Others have a great need for privacy. Understand who you're dating. Understand who you're married to. And learn how much you can push. Don't over-push. For example, asking your husband or wife the following question. Where are you going? Can be viewed as normal or can be viewed as prying. It depends on who the person is. Some people will tell you, oh, I'm going to the bank. Others will say, you have to ask me everything I'm doing. It depends who the person is. That comes from experience in dating and experience in living with the person. It depends on the personalities of both people and their relationship and the exact way you say it. That's why it's critical to learn how to become an effective communicator. One of the greatest books ever written on a subject is by a Gentile named Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It costs three or four dollars on Amazon. I tell and I advise everyone out there, read this book. It's Kodesh Kodashim. Someone who grew up in a happy family where both the father and the mother cared deeply about each other and which each of the children were given love and were treasured has a different emotional history than someone who grew up in a family torn with strife, anger, quarrels, and insults. For example, tonight I'm on the phone with a man in the West Coast. He hasn't seen his kids in seven months. He describes a marriage in which the woman is just cold and doesn't talk to him and makes him crazy and doesn't communicate with him, and doesn't show expressions of love or endearment to him. Two different people, raised in two different households. And so, it's a problem. And now they try to come together, and there's no DW40. And they fight, and they argue. Frustration and anger left over from when you are a child, may affect an individual's present level of frustration and anger. So one of the things you have to check about yourself, is when you are dating... Do you have any emotional baggage from the past that you needed to get therapy for? Well, don't wait until you're married to solve the problem. Because as I always say, if you have problems, marriage won't make them go away. Marriage will only make them worse. Solve the problem when you're single. If there's an emotional component or a disability within your personality, deal with it now. On the other hand, someone who grew up in a happy house where everyone spoke with love and respect to each other, might experience greater pain with a small fight than someone for whom this was frequent. For example, I come from a loving, warm home. 
I'm not used to seeing fighting, and suddenly I'm involved in some quarrels with my spouse or the person that I'm dating. I'm going to take it very personally and very seriously. Because I'm not used to that kind of behavior. Someone else who's used to a house of fighting all the time, for them it's normal. For some individuals, marriage is an escape from what was an intolerable single's life. While for others, it's a joyous entering into the next stage of development. Some people, you'll see them, they grew up in homes that are nebuch, that are just dysfunctional, and they run into marriage thinking, I can finally run away and get into something else. Sometimes it works, other times they just bring the problem with them because they never solved the real issue. Some people grew up in large families, others in small families, and some were only children. I often wonder when I deal with people, because I do a lot of shiduchim, and I'm involved in matchmaking a lot, and when I sit with people who have eight or nine or ten brothers, it's rare that you'll find everyone turned out religious. It's, un- it's unfortunate. It's rare. You'll always, out of eight, nine, or ten, well, seven are good, two off the derech. It's not always eight possible that everyone gets the love and warmth that they need. That's the trick. So you have to make sure every kid gets that. Okay, now, a rational thinker will devote a lot of time and effort to gathering knowledge and information to become more smarter about the spouse and learning how to deal with the, with the spouse. Now, here's a story. A short while after my daughter was married, my son-in-law told me that when he was engaged, he heard the following from a few people. Here are two rules to remember after you get married. This is a woman telling about her son-in-law, and this is what he learned from, from people. First, he was told, many women are afraid of cockroaches and bugs. They'll stand on the chair. So if your wife sees a bug and is afraid of it, don't laugh. Be a hero, rescue her. Always go to the bug, step on the bug for your wife. Second, when your wife mops the floor, never step on the floor while it's wet. Wait until it dries. The question that is asked in the yeshiva circles is, what do you do if there's a bug on a wet floor when your wife has just finished mopping it? <laughs> That's a Gemara Shekhar question, right? So what do you do? Again, let's repeat that question. And the yeshiva is asked, what do you do if there's a bug on a wet floor when your wife has just finished mopping the floor. So I remember when I heard this for the first time, I appreciated what a smart question. This question expresses the concept, don't just do or not do something that will affect your husband or wife. Think first about the proper course of action. You know, give it some thought. The, the humor in this question is that no one can answer this question for any, anybody. It's up to you to answer this question individually. The proper and correct thing to do is to ask the one individual who can decide, and that's your wife. Honey, can I go into the kitchen and kill the bug for you? You can't act according to the vote of the majority or even of the authority. Everyone is different and everyone is unique. You want to be a great husband or a wife, you've got to learn how to press the buttons of the other person. The only other person, the only opinion that really matters is the person you're married to. Now, Someone who doesn't understand the reactions of his or her spouse is likely to repeat the same mistakes again and again because they don't understand their spouse and they don't understand how to deal with them. If you keep pressing, pushing a button in a wall that's near a light switch and instead of turning on the light, it just gave you a mild shock, how many times would it take until your brain said to you, if you want to turn the light on, don't press this button. This button will shock you. Press the light switch. Only someone who is incapable of rational thinking or has a bad memory will keep pressing the wrong button. But that's what happens in marriage. People keep pressing the wrong button. Annoying the wife again and again and again and again. Right? Annoying the husband again and again and again. They just don't change. They keep pressing the wrong button on the wall. 
Be smart in your marriage. Learn from the previous mistakes and the reactions of your husband or wife. If you see that something you say or do gets your spouse angry or irritated or upset, stop doing it. Of course it can be difficult to change your pattern, but it's worth it to save the marriage. Here's a story. I was married over a year. Thank you. Excellent. I was married over a year and there were many things about my spouse that I could not understand. At times I said things that I considered to be good, yet the reaction was negative. There were also times that I said or did something without thinking about it and he was happy with it. I remember a time that I came home in a bad mood and I spoke in a manner that reflected that I was in a bad mood. For the next two hours my spouse was silent. I understood this to be angry and therefore my own anger kept increasing even though neither of us said a word. I thought he was upset. Well, she was upset. Later on, I realized that my own irritability gave a message to my spouse that I wanted space. And what I thought that was anger was really he he or she were giving me the time to have my own space because they saw I came home from work upset. He was giving me my space to chill out. Another example is that I would ask my spouse, how was your day? I meant this to be the opening of a friendly discussion. I found out that this was taken as an attack with a message of, I think that you wasted a good part of your day, so I'm checking up on you. Like, people get upset. He was upset by, by being asked the question, how was your day, as if like he wasted his day and he wasn't doing things that were serious. Sometimes I made a joke, and we both laughed. And other times I made a joke, and he would say, he or she would say, I don't find that funny. I spoke to someone who has a deep understanding of people, and this is what he told me. There are many rules about human beings and about human nature. But each person is a product of unique genes, a unique family, and a unique environment from childhood to the present. You probably will never understand another person totally, but listen and observe carefully. Watch the person that you date. Watch the person, listen to the person that you date or that you're married to. Take notes in your head. You will hear from them what you need to stay away from and what you need to increase. By listening to their responses, you'll learn what upsets them and you'll learn what they like. I was, this is a inter- very interesting story. A man writes, I was very diligent in my Torah studies when I was single. I was friendly with other guys in yeshiva whose whole interest was learning, but not with those guys who would talk about anything else. So I wouldn't hang out with the guys who talked about business or sports. I was in yeshiva, the man writes, and I would talk to, I was friendly with the guys who were only exclusively into learning. I wanted to marry a girl who would appreciate me as I was, and who would not make demands on me to talk about anything else that's not Torah. I was under the impression that the person I decided to marry would appreciate my Torah learning to such an extent that she would not make any demands on me except when she needed practical help when she wasn't feeling well. This man was a real interesting character. Don't bother me. Don't send me to the dry cleaners. Don't send me to pick up the kids from the, from the, from the doctor. Don't send me to go to, to the supermarket. Unless it's an absolute emergency. <laughs> right? If, unless you're not feeling well. When I was engaged, a number of people told me that I would have to become a little bit more worldly and interested in other topics, as you can't just talk to your wife about Torah all day and all night. 
I argued at first that I was certain my Kala would not want this. No, I'm going to marry a Kala who's going to want to talk, you know, Chumash, Mishnah, Gemara, Rishonim, Achroinim, and everything. I argued at first, right? I was told she might speak when you go out with her on a date, like she sounds, she's very elevated spiritually, but after a while, and you'll be married, she's going to talk about other things. This was repeated to me by people I respected, and I accepted it. During the week of Sheva Brachas, when I went out of my way to talk to my Kala about politics, about business, about other things, vacation, she said to me, I feel you're purposely trying to talk to me about this to make me feel good. I feel best when I see that you're learning Torah. Just keep learning. My dream is to be married to a super masmid. A masmid is a diligent person who doesn't do anything else but study Torah. If I ever change my mind, I'll let you know that I'm ready to talk about Donald Trump and other things. Right now, it's fine. Talk, be yourself. We've been married 15 years, and she still has not let me know about any change in her attitude. He's got a real tzaddikid here. Tzaddikis. I appreciate her more than words can tell, can tell you. And my feelings as she feels the same about me. Another story. When I was single, I heard that when you get married, your wife will always want to cook your favorite dishes for you. I used to eat Shabbos meals at the homes of many people. Whenever I especially enjoyed eating something, I called up the family after Shabbos, and I asked them, can I have the recipe for that dish? After I became engaged, I handed my kala a thick notebook of recipes that I told her I would like her to use after we're married. He had gone to so many people's houses. Every time he was there for Shabbos, he liked something that they made. He'd call them up once a Shabbos, he'd get the recipe. After a while, he built himself up a nice little book of recipes. He gets married, he says to his wife, Here, honey, here's my favorite dishes. She, the look on her face told me quite clearly that she was less than happy and enthusiastic about the entire idea. She handed it back to me and said, I don't think that I need this right now. After we were married for a couple of months, however, on her own, she asked me if I still had the notebook. I was thrilled. It takes time sometimes. Another story. A Torah scholar who lectures in a large yeshiva related that the saddest marriage story he ever heard was from his Rebbe. Listen to this story. He heard it 25 years ago. And it has remained with him as a lesson on how common sense, or seichel as we say, is needed to apply in life. You know they say, there's four codes of the Shulchan Aruch. What's the fifth code? Can anyone tell me from the audience? Common sense. That the Shulchan Aruch didn't put in there. You have to sort of develop it. His Rebbe was a mashkiach, or a dean, let's say, of a major yeshiva. And this Rebbe, this mashkiach, was known that he was very, very holy. The wife of one of his students called him up and complained bitterly about her husband. He wasn't treating her well. She had many complaints. But the central complaint was that her husband was not warm enough towards her. He was Adish. Anyone know what Adish means in Hebrew? Cold, indifferent. He was like sheetrock. The man wasn't expressive. He wasn't enthusiastic. He wasn't warm. He was cold. Her husband was not warm. She felt lonely. She felt miserable in the marriage. The fellow wasn't mean, nor was he cruel, but he was in his own world. And he ignored her. Just like this fellow told me tonight. I, I flew back and forth between two cities to make a living. After three years, while she was going to school, my wife, she didn't say a word to me. She didn't even make me a Sauda thanking me. Some people are in their own world. 
So this woman calls up the mashkiach or the dean, says, my husband, he's indifferent to me, he's not warm, he's cold, he's in his living in his own box. The rabbi spoke to the young man the next day and told him to be more expressive towards your wife. Again, the key to successful dating and marriage is communication. Learning how to communicate, especially learning how to give compliments. One of the great lectures that I've given is, don't give pain, give pleasure. The ultimate formula for success in dating and marriage. Don't give pain. And one of the ways to give pleasure is by giving a compliment and becoming habitual at it and consistent. So, the rabbi met with the young man, spoke to him and told him, be more expressive to your wife. Talk to her. Show her you care. Ask her questions. On a practical level, he advised them to be more openly affectionate. Be affectionate. Hi, honey. How is your day? How are you, my love? What's doing? The fellow followed the rabbi's suggestion and told his wife, I'm doing this because the rabbi told me to. Needless to say, the rabbi received another call with another complaint. He had no seichel, this guy. You know, I'm being nice to you because my rabbi said I should be nice to you. What a genius. All he did was make it worse. He put more oil on the fire. The sad part of the story is that the husband meant well, and he wanted to do what his rabbi told him. But he didn't know where to put off, where to cut off, what not to say. He ruined what could have been the beginning of a great and of an improvement in their marriage. He ruined it because he lacked that common sense. Here's another story. I've been married two months now, and without mod- false modesty, I have to state that I'm a great cook. I enjoy cooking elaborate, fancy dishes. My husband enjoys eating them, and I appreciate it when he gives me positive feedback. After a number of weeks of constant, high-quality meals, I served leftovers that I thought were good. My husband, who's usually very hungry at supper, took a couple of bites and stopped eating right in the middle of the meal. The face he made when chewing told me, something's wrong with the food. What's the matter, I asked my husband. Is there a problem with the way the food tastes? No, he said, your food is as good as always. It's just that I'm not hungry right now. Are you certain that there's nothing wrong with the food? He said to me, I'm telling you, there's nothing wrong with the food. I just don't feel like eating. I didn't believe him. But I wasn't, I wasn't certain, so I took a bite of the food myself. As soon as I tasted it, I spit it out. It tasted rotten. I could see that he must have read or heard that a husband should never criticize his wife's cooking. Since I had confidence in my own proficiency as a cook, I wanted honest and accurate feedback. But this man had major league musser. You know the famous story that I tell about uh, a man called Mr. Abramson, who um, was one of the students of the mirror in Shanghai. And his son, Yosef, goes to yeshiva. And he decides to go visit his son in the dorm to see how his son is doing in an out-of-town yeshiva. So, Yosef says, Dad, you know, it's time for lunch and I have a little stove. Let me make noodles. Like you eat at home. He says, no, no, son, I'm not in the mood. Can you make me a scrambled egg? So the son was in shock. His father ate noodles twice a week by his mother and didn't say anything for... for for 25 years, didn't say anything bad. So he said, Dad, how come you don't want to eat noodles today? He says, you know what? When I was in China, because of the hot weather, 
There used to be worms in all the noodles, and now it reminds me when I when I when I when I eat the noodles, it reminds me of the worms. But at home with his wife, he ate it for twenty five years. He didn't say a word. Look at the musr. He didn't say a word to his wife. He ate it. But his son, he said, "Could you do me a favor and make me an egg?" But with the wife, twenty five years, twice a week, he ate the noodles. and didn't say boo. That's musar. Seeing things from other people's point of view. Very important. We see everything from our point of view. When we fight, it's my side that I see only. When I have a debate, it's only my side. It's natural tendency to see our point of view as the reality. That that's the way it really is. The only problem is that every other person in the world sees it differently than us. With, to understand the dynamics of any marriage, it's necessary to enter the mind of your spouse. Before you attack and argue, just change positions and ask yourself, okay, let me put myself in her shoes or his shoes and see how they view it. A husband only knows his own mind and the same goes for the wife. Each needs to understand the other from the other perspective. It's easy to project your side. When you master the ability to see things from the other person's point of view, you'll be more compassionate and you'll be more understanding. You'll do more chesed. You'll save yourself and the other person from experiencing pain. You'll avoid many fights. It's important to keep in mind that with my wife, my, my wife's life history, what does it mean to her? With my life history, what does it mean to me? When there's arguing in a marriage, both sides suffer. Each partner experiences their own suffering. Both need to be aware that they both have suffered. By saying to the other person, you didn't suffer as much as I did growing up, accomplishes nothing. When the husband and the wife perceive and acknowledge the other person's pain, they're going to be motivated to make positive changes that will be beneficial to both. There was a rabbi in England. His name was Eliyahu Dessler. He was a genius. Eliyahu Dessler, a master of understanding people, wrote the classic book called Mikhtav Miliyahu. Wrote the following. Develop the habit of seeing other people as they see themselves. All anger, all hatred, all fights arise because a person views the situation from his own perspective or from her own perspective and fail to see themselves from the viewpoint of the other person. Next time you're about to fight with someone, just jump into the chair of the person you're arguing with and try to understand what they're seeing. And when you do that, you're less likely to fight. You're less likely to argue. You're more likely to do more chesed and be more compassionate. For example, if a poor person asks someone who's rich for a large donation, the wealthy person might view the request as, you know, chutzpah and become angry. Who are you to ask me for $10,000 or $20,000? The poor person feels insulted and perplexed. He thinks to himself, Hashem has given this guy so much money, why doesn't he share what he has with me? They separate from each other with a fight and bad feelings. If each would try to understand the position of the other person, however, even though they still might not agree, the majority of conflicts that arise in relationships could be avoided. Seeing things from the other person's point of view will have a profound effect on your personality. Since all the qualities that, 
deal with how we relate to others are dependent on this concept. You will find it easier to master this when you realize how beneficial it is for your happiness and success in life to have many people love and care about you. And if you fight with everyone, you're going to have very few people that love and care for you. It's important to see other people's perspectives and agree to them once in a while so that you have some fans in this world. When you master the ability to view others as they see themselves, you will gain the love of everyone. And your dealings with other people don't relate to them only with cold logic. Take their emotions and personalities into consideration. If a person gets upset and they're, anxi- and they're anxious, don't get, a, don't get so upset with them. You know why? Because you have to tell yourself, that person, you know how they are. They just ignite quickly. They blow up quickly. Know what you're dealing with before you start to entangle yourself with that person. The Vilna Gaon emphasized the importance of seeing things from another person's point of view when you communicate with someone who is different than you. When talking to someone who thinks differently than you, especially when the person is being irrational, which we encounter a lot in our lives, enter the other person's world and answer them person according to their reasoning. Try to see what they're thinking and talk to them according to their line of reasoning. It's important to remember, don't answer them according to your own logic, because that's how you get into fights. But in a way, consistent with that person's distorted way of thinking. When you practice seeing things from your spouse's point of view, it will become almost automatic. Exactly how long it will take depends on how much you work hard to understand their point of view. Some women have told me that they wish their husbands would read a few books on marriage. But we have an opposite problem. A woman writes, my husband reads everything he can on the subject. But he makes one mistake and it's a major one. He tries to follow what's written in each book as if the rules were absolute Torah from heaven. Again, seichel, use common sense. Don't walk around the book and just say, oh, I can't do that. The manual says this, and the manual says that. Sometimes it's not the book, it's your head. You have to use common sense and logic. One day he came home, the woman writes, with an expensive necklace that to me seemed ugly. Why'd you buy this, I asked him. So that he told his wife, I went to a shiur and had it in Shalom Bayis. The rabbi said that at times you want, your wife might want something strong, but if, I, if you feel uncomfortable about asking it, like what? And he said, like an expensive necklace. So I, right after the class, I ran to a jewelry store and I bought this for you. I don't have a problem with asking you for what I want. We have different tastes. So please ask me what I want, what I want next time before you buy something. Share with me. A husband and a wife were going through marriage counseling to resolve major personality differences between the two of them. They had already signed up at the rabbinate in Yerushalayim for a divorce. They already signed up for the divorce. They both came from different cultures. Their languages were different. They had different interests in life. I didn't feel that their marriage had a chance of success. So they were all aligned to get a divorce. As a last minute try, they decided to go for counseling to see if there's a possibility to save the marriage. 
The rabbi they spoke to found that although at first glance they did not look as if they had much in common, deep down they loved and respected each other, and were still hoping that some changes could be made that would enable them to remain married. The husband kept looking at his watch. Listen to this story. The entire meeting. So they're sitting with the counselor, and the husband, he's listening, but he's constantly looking at his watch. The wife looked at this and became irritated and bothered. In a tone of voice which accused him, she said to him, you're not interested in this lesson, obviously. You keep looking at your watch. He said, no, I'm very interested. I feel that we're making progress. I think we have hope that we can save our marriage. So the counselor looked at the wife and said to the wife, what makes you feel that he's not interested? And she said, he keeps looking at his watch. The counselor said, to me the way he keeps responding shows that he's strongly interested in doing what he wants, what he can do to stay married. But she said, but he keeps looking at his watch. The husband responded, I always like to know the time. I'm just all my life. Some people like to look at the time all the time. She didn't understand his ways. When you live with someone, pay attention. Take notes. You understand? That his, one of his mannerisms is like he likes to look at his watch. He, likes, he needs to know the time. Just certain individuals have to find out what the weather is 20 times a day. They're constantly pressing the weather button. They're addicted. They're fixated with that. This guy was fixated with the time. He says to her, I like to look, I have to know the time all the time. It's a habit of mine. I'm not in a rush, and this meeting is my highest priority. I'm willing to stay as long as it takes to save this marriage. The counselor pointed out that the husband kept nodding his head, which was his way of communicating his agreement. So the counselor saw that the husband was in agreement and was paying attention. The wife was only focusing on the negative. Take questions after. Behold, he was used to communicating with other professionals who also nod their heads. And he hadn't realized that this was normal. The wife was emotional and verbal, and to her, agreement needed to be expressed verbally and explicitly. Some people nod, and others talk. So he's used to nodding. Nodding is his way of saying, I'm with you, I'm, I'm carrying the conversation. She didn't like that, she wanted the verbal. The husband was taught. Now, they figured out the problem. Here's the problem. Your wife needs to be spoken to. She's a human being. Right? So the counsel taught him to express himself and learn to acknowledge his wife verbally. Verb- yes, honey. No, honey. I like that. Let's try this instead of the nodding. The wife needed to learn to interpret his head motions to increase her ability to read him accurately. So she needed to understand what he meant when he nodded, and he needed to open up and explain himself a little bit more. Once they learned how to give messages and receive messages, they were on their way to reaching an agreement about a number of the issues that previously were a source of problems. And eventually their arguments went away, and instead of being on the divorce docket two days later, they saved their marriage and now happily married. It was all a matter of miscommunication, of not understanding each other's habits. My husband has a habit that gets on my nerves. Wherever we go, he's always pointing out dangers to people. He protests if anyone tries to cross the street against the red light. They could be standing him and his wife, and there's two other people, and there's no cars coming, 
and someone standing next to them wants to jaywalk and cause no, don't do that. You know, strangers. He tells people to stick in their arms when a car is moving, even though no one's in danger. Like you might see someone has his elbow out in the window of the car, and he'll tell him, hey guys, put, stick your hand back in. He tells people to stop smoking. And he reprimands anyone who does anything he considers dangerous. At times, I'm embarrassed when he starts doing this to complete strangers. I told my husband to stop it, but he replies, I'm not allowed to. It's a big mitzvah to save people's lives. And we're forbidden to pass up an opportunity when we can protect and save someone from harm. He saw it as his responsibility to tell total strangers to do things that were, or to avoid doing things that were harmful. After 10 years of this kind of behavior, I recall an incident that I've once forgotten. On our very first date, he picked up a banana peel that was on the sidewalk and carried it until we found a trash can. This guy's a tzaddik. Huh? I remember how impressed I was. He also told the taxi driver to drive carefully and he made certain to take me to the door of my house even though I told him you don't have to. I was highly impressed with his general care and concern and figured he was always, this is the kind of guy I want to marry. I can be sure he's going to be kind to me. While some people might consider this more than a bit strange, I try to see what he does from his point of view. You see what she did? She put herself in his point of view. As he always tells me, if I save just one life in my lifetime, all my efforts will have been worth it. Understanding his perspective made me such a better spouse and strengthened our marriage. Now I'll tell you a story and we'll break. Sixteen years into our marriage, I told my wife Leah I want a divorce. By then, our marriage was practically non-existent. We could not carry on normal conversation. Since she would explode in anger at practically anything I said. And the only thing she ever had to say to me were complaints. She'd always call, bother me. You're never around. You don't help me. You don't appreciate what I do. You work too late. You don't earn enough money. You snore too loud. It became just a litany of complaints. After 16 years of worsening Gehenim, I was convinced there was no hope for our marriage. And I was dead serious when I told her I want a divorce. I want out of here. Her reaction shocked me. I expected her to react with anger, with tears. But instead her face lit up. I have not felt this much respect for you in years, she said to me, after he asked her for a divorce. I knew what that statement meant. But I was determined to follow through and my plan was to give a get. We're going to talk to Rav Schultzer, I said. And from there, we're going to Bastin, and I'm giving the get. Bravo, Leah cheered. I had long suspected she was losing her mind, and this weird reaction was yet another indication she was losing her mind. Rav Schultzer is the Rav of our shul and our community. When Leah and I sat down to talk to him, I spared him no details in describing the horrible state of our marriage, and I listed all the grievances I had against my wife. And he told him it's been 16 years of alternating between fighting and ignoring each other. We don't have a life. My wife is a horrible housekeeper. The house is always messy and chaotic. She's terrible at money management. She's constantly overspending. She lies in bed much of the day, sleeping, reading books, watching videos. And anytime I say anything, she blows up at me in a fury. 
You should hear the yelling that goes on in our house. When my wife starts carrying on, every neighbor on the block can hear her. And I know, I know what? Because people have asked me if everything's okay. I've done, I'm done with this marriage, I'm, I concluded. So Rabbi, tell me, how do I give the get? What's the procedure? Let's go. Rav Schultz leaned back in his chair, raised an eyebrow, and he said to me, Oh, is that all? All? We've gone from therapy and marriage counseling for two years and years with nothing to show for it except $100,000 in the garbage that I spent on therapists. My relatives and hers are urging us to get divorced. Our marriage is dead. Is that not grounds for a divorce, Rabbi? Rav Schultzer gave a smile. I can't say I'm too impressed. He said, if you heard as many bad Shalom Bayes stories as I have, you wouldn't take your own situation that seriously either. So the rabbi didn't feel it was such a bad, desperate situation. And he went on to tell us some incredible stories of couples he dealt with whose issues made ours seem like it was a cakewalk. Then he turned to Leah, and, and, and what do you say, he asked. Are you also ready to divorce, throw in the towel? Not at all, she said. Moshe and I have always had the same values and goals and enjoyed the same things. From the first minute we met until today, we have seen eye to eye on every important issue. I just wish he would communicate his expectations clearly and calmly instead of bottling everything up inside him. He's always unhappy with me, and most of the time I have no idea why he's not happy with me. Instead of telling me what he wants, he walks around miserable and quiet, and once in a while he barks out an order, he mutters a complaint. Then when I tell him he's being unreasonable, he launches into a, a tirade about how I don't listen or respect him, how he ne- his needs don't matter, how I'm a lousy wife, how I'm a lousy mother, how I'm a lousy homemaker, and then he wonders why I'm angry. Rav Shosa put up his hand, I must tell you, he began, that Shalom Bai's problems are unfortunately not uncommon today. Many people have them. But yours can be fixed if you're willing to put in the effort. Honestly, I think you're an ideal couple. You're a model couple in the community. In fact, people like you don't get divorced. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I came to the rabbi to get a give a get. But Rav Schultzer is not a lightweight. And in all the years I knew him, I couldn't remember anything that he said that was not on the money. He was certainly not given to exaggeration. And if he was telling us we were an ideal couple, I had no doubt that he meant it. Well, well, that kind of put a damper on my plans to get divorced. But I still had no idea, what do we do now? Leah was not changing, that was clear. So where does that leave me? Stuck for eternity in a miserable, loveless marriage with a witch of a wife? Work on it, the rabbi urged. Home isn't built in a day. We've swallowed the Hollywood lie that marriage starts on cloud nine and goes downhill from there. The truth is that while a young couple does get an initial injection of excitement, which is Hashem's wedding gift to them, the real joy of their relationship happens as a result of years and years of hard, messy work. And that's true, ladies and gentlemen. Shalom Bayes is hard, messy work. With lots of up and downs, lots of failures, Lots of disappointments. The foundation of a good marriage is built by digging through a lot of mud, but eventually, as the building takes shape, you slowly move out of the grime and start to see what heaven looks like. You've just invested 16 years into digging a foundation. Now, leave my office and go build up your house. As we stepped out of the rabbi's house, my head spinning from the way the conversation played out 
Leah asked me to go out for coffee. Once we were inside the coffee shop, she pulled the pen and paper from her purse. I want, to, I want you to tell me very clearly how and where I'm not meeting your needs, she said. She was ready. She brought a notebook. She said to her husband, where's the problem? What am I not doing right? Where am I not meeting your needs? You want to know, I declared? I'll tell you. And he did. She took notes while sipping her coffee. And from now on, I announced, I'm going to be in charge of the money. I expected she'd be angry. But she surprised me by nodding in agreement that she would allow me to take care of the money. Fantastic, she said. I find money very overwhelming, and I'm never confident to take care of it. I almost dropped my coffee. So why didn't you ask me to take care of the money? I've told you so many times that I wasn't happy with the way you, be, you were handling the money. You never offered to take it, she said. All you did was yell at me for overspending and grumble about how busy you were and how you could never rely on me. All you did was complain and criticize, but you never offered to take the responsibility off my shoulders. I opened my mouth to argue. Instead, I, I stated the rest of my expectations, including my need for a clean home, which meant that I would be discarding much of the junk that Leah insisted on holding on to. I was positive she'd not agree, but she didn't. She agreed. That's reasonable, she said. I'll get rid of all the junk. She wanted me to get a steady job and a paycheck instead of working crazy hours. Lastly, she asked me for three affirmations every day. And she wanted him to say the following to her every day. I'm beautiful, you love me, and everything will be okay. I want you to say that to me. She said to him, every day, three affirmations. That I'm beautiful, that you love me, and everything will be okay. Very important. I thought this final island was loony, that I have to say these three things to her every day. But Leah insisted it was crucial for her. I agreed to it. That was the first time in years that I felt that my needs actually mattered. And Leah said she couldn't remember the last time we had such a great, open, honest conversation. That meeting with the rabbi was followed by months and months of work on our marriage. I lost weight. I found a steady job. I cut back on my work hours so I could be home at night at a normal time. I also took over the finances. And as, as, I, and I, as, as I promised, I spent days cleaning the house and dumping bag after bag of useless stuff into the garbage. Leah kept her part of the bargain, making our marriage a priority and ensuring that she was not too tired or busy or distracted to focus on the relationship. She claimed that my three affirmations, which I faithfully uttered every morning, meant the world to her. Right? What did he have to tell her every day? She's beautiful, I love you, and everything will be okay. That changed her life. You know why? Because a woman must always feel makomri shon, like she's first place. And there's no better way to do it than to affirm it to her. During those months, we played backgammon, we played games, entrenched patterns of unhealthy interaction are not quickly overturned. But I remember what the rabbi told us, you're an ideal couple, a model couple in this community. He made us believe that our problems were not as bad as we thought, and we could turn things around. In the past, the patterns were the same. She would complain, I would blow up, 
and things would turn ugly from there. Now I realize that when my wife gets upset and starts to vent, the best and only thing to do is keep my mouth shut and just listen to her, let her vent. The biggest problem is when the man starts to engage and then we have, boom, explosion. That takes a lot of confidence and self-control, which I've come to believe are the two most important elements in being a man. And what a woman respects in her husband is confidence and control. 90% of the time, having the confidence to quietly listen, which with a total calm face, and completely resist the urge to respond, will completely diffuse a tense situation. Don't talk back. Just listen. Often within 30 seconds, problems are about to explode, just go away. Once I mastered the skill of keeping quiet and just listening, I had the luxury of actually answering. With time I learned that when an apology is called for, it should be done with confidence. Don't be afraid to say sorry. Don't let your ego get in the way. Say it without blubbering or groveling. It's okay. Shortly afterwards, Leah bumped into one of our neighbors, who she didn't see in a while. The ones who used to hear all the noise and shouting in our house. I thought you got divorced, she said. Things have been so quiet in your house. I was sure your husband moved out. No, Leah said, we didn't get divorced. We just learned how to get along. Getting along is so important. These days, not only do Leah and I get along, but I can honestly say that we have the best shalom bias of anyone in the community. We really are an ideal couple. Not because we don't have issues, but because we learned to work through our issues so effectively that those very issues bring us closer together and help us achieve greater understanding, empathy, and respect. We learned how to flow with each other to work around our shortcomings and to focus on the good in each other, not the negative. As the rabbi told us, building a good marriage is a process. It takes years and years to develop the ability to live in harmony and reach a place of deep love and admiration. Leah is is still not a great housekeeper, but I've come to realize that having a happy home is more important than having a neat house. Sometimes you have to close your eyes. You know, Benjamin Franklin said, when you are dating... Keep both eyes open. When you are married, close one. We don't fight anymore. When Leah feels the need to express her frustration, which is still often, I just keep quiet and listen. And I acknowledge. Today I understand exactly why Leah gave new respect for me when I told her I wanted a divorce. All along, she was waiting for me to take the lead, to show that I am someone to be reckoned with. And when I declared I'm done with this marriage, she heard confidence in my voice. I pissed past the test. And I'm going to continue passing that test no matter what she throws at me. Moira Boisai, ladies and gentlemen, it's all about adapting, changing, understanding the other person, seeing things from their perspective, going to a third party like a mentor. I do a lot of this work with people throughout the world trying to save their marriages, trying to understand from the other person's perspective. Reach out to the Rav, someone like me, you can catch me on, on drjackdating.com or whatever it may be. You can be helped. It's just a matter of understanding the other person. So, it's my wish that we should be able to dance at the weddings of everyone here and everyone in the, in the audience out there. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.